Listener Production. Automotive commentator and journalist Greg Rust, and this is Rusty's Garage. For this episode, I'm at Highlands Motorsport Park in Cromwell, about 40 minutes drive from Queenstown on New Zealand's beautiful South Island. It's one of the tracks owned by Tony Quinn, who you can find in our library, and it is a work of art. Not plugging the episode there, I mean the race venue. You could almost be at any of the great tracks in Europe. Such is the beauty of the central Otago setting here. TQ and his team have won the rights to stage the 68th New Zealand Grand Prix here, one of the few races in the world to have a GP title, even though it's not part of the F1 World Championship. Some great names have won the race over the years. Bruce McLaren, Sir Jackie Stewart, Sir Jack Brabham, Craig Baird, Paul Radisich, and in the modern era, Liam Lawson and Shane Van Gisbergen. Typically, the race attracts lots of names from New Zealand, Australia and beyond. Among the interested onlookers this year is Dick Bennett, who grew up only a few hours' drive from here, but he's made quite a name for himself as a team owner and engineer in the UK, in Formula 3 especially, and for more than 20 years now in the British Touring Car Championship. In that arms race period of super touring, you may remember that he ran former F1 world champion and IndyCar title winner Nigel Mansell in a Ford Mondeo. Now there are so many names, so apologies if I don't get to all of them that he has worked with. I didn't get to Tom Oliphant, for example, who now races in TCR in Australia. I basically just chatted with Dickie and there's some ripper memories in here of people like a young Ayrton Senna, his battles with Martin Brundle, the Visa challenge for Mika Hakkinen, who was incredibly fast, and much, much more. Plus the BMWs, his highly respected West Surrey racing organisation build and now run in the BTCC, and what that series is like. We'll also talk about what the future may hold for him too. It is great to have him back in our part of the world. As you'll hear, the summer break has still had its calls and emails back to base in the UK as he prepares for the season ahead. I hope you enjoy the discussion. Welcome. You've actually been down under for, I guess, the first time since the the pandemic, and you've been here for the longest ever since you left this this country, haven't you? Yes, yeah. Normally we come home for four weeks. Um, the last time we were here was four years ago. This time we're actually six weeks and two days, so it's the longest ever holiday we've been on. But, you know, we love coming back to New Zealand. We're at Highlands and you've been genuinely impressed by this place, haven't you? Oh, very impressed. Well, you know, when I was young, I earned my first money to buy my first car by picking fruit in my uncle's orchard in Roxburgh. So I've always had an affiliation with Central, but now with Highlands here, it's just, you know, and everyone I meet say, you must, and we had actually had a friend from the UK here, I said, you must go to Highlands on your way through from Cromwell to Wanaka, and they come and spent two hours here and said, wow, what a facility. And he used to work for BMW UK, so he's seen a lot of racetracks. So we are literally, if I've got the dots joined right here, we're only a couple of hours from where you grew up. Really, aren't we? You, you. Am I right in saying that you grew up around Dunedin on the South Island here? Born and bred in Dunedin, but spent all of my early years with my mum and dad. My dad was a keen fisherman. We used to go camping at Albert Town, Wanaka. Then when we got old enough, just chatting to my mates here today, um, we used from probably 17 till I was 21, we used to go to Glendu Bay, camping, um, water skiing, uh, testing all the bears out. Uh, so, no, fantastic early days of my life. And the connection to motor racing comes about how? Were you always fascinated with, with things from an engineering perspective, engines and so on? And when, when did the kind of first car race capture, capture you or captivate you? Actually, I wanted to be a, an architect, but I was a bit lazy at school. I used to love drawing, so my parents didn't have a lot of money, so I couldn't pursue it. So my second choice was engineering. So I got a job in Dunedin Engineering and that got me involved with engines. I loved you know, high performance engines. Then we started playing with cars and we actually, we laughed about it 
earlier, um, we set up a little Otago sports car club. We had a Piranha race team. Uh, I had a 100 E4, my mate had a 105 E Anglia, one had a Humber 80, uh, one had a Mini Cooper. So that was our little Piranha race team. And yeah, we used to do hill climbs and sprint meetings. So I've loved motorsport from a you know, very young age. Was there a crossover point here where you figured that your talents, I mean, clearly you enjoyed the, the fun, the social aspect, the actual competition, driving and so on, but was, was there a point where you thought you were going to be um, able to pursue something better served by going down the, the preparation and, and engineering path? That was a big decision I took and it, um, the, I was quite happy in Dunedin, you know, my mates were always had you know, some fun, but I thought I had this inkling I wanted to go a bit further. So it was Alan Dick that phoned me with his magazine Motorman, I think it was, Moto Action, Motor, way back in 69. He said, there's a job coming up in Auckland, performance developments. He said, it just sounds like me. So I flew up there, did an interview, flew back. They rang me two weeks later, flew back up again, and I got the job. So it was a bit hard at the time to leave all my mates at the time. Um, but I wanted to pursue my career, so I had a job there. I really enjoyed it there. But then Dennis Marwood took me to the Auckland Car Club one night to get me to meet people. I was boarding out in Papakura. I didn't have a flat or anything. And then um, uh, uh, sorry, Dennis introduced me to David Oxton, and then David and I became friends. And of course, when he won the Formula Four Championship, his prize was a free trip to the UK. And David said, do you want to come and help me? I said, oh, I'd love to, but I've, I've only been at Portland Developments a couple of years. So I spoke to Ray and Dennis and I said, you know, I'll be away two years and I'll be back. And the rest is history. <laughs> I've, I've now been away 51 years. Can we, before we get to the, the whole England chapter, just, just focus on David for a, a little mi- a moment because people listening in Australia and those that, that um, follow the podcast here in New Zealand will you know, remember him very fondly. I mean, um, you know, incredibly talented in, in open wheels and ran in touring cars and things as well, didn't he? Yep. Uh, Engineering-wise, he was very good with a car. Driving-wise, very used his head. Um, you know, Formula Ford champion, 5,000 champion, um, touring cars with Peter Brock and those sort of legends of the day. Um, and, yeah, he was a good, or still is a good, we have some... 12,000 miles away, there's four or five of us on a, a WhatsApp <laughs> link and we put the world to rights on motorsport, whether it's in New Zealand and the UK, worldwide, Formula One, NASCAR, you know, we, we talk about it with David and I actually stayed with him up in Auckland when we arrived and then down at his holiday home in Matarangi um, and again, we're up till midnight talking motorsport, the girls are gone to bed and um, no, he's still a great friend. So. Yeah, I must get him on the podcast uh, yes, and, and have a chat at some stage. There is a story yeah, that talk if I've... Him, talk it, about his Ralt RT4, he must get it out the mothballs and use it. Yeah, he's not, has he, Is that uh, a project in the works kind of thing? It's been sitting in his um, garage down at Hampton Downs for years and years and years. And it's a championship winning car. Okay. We'll... we'll Put a bit of pressure on him, twist his arm a little bit. Can we come to um, the, the early phase of you being in the UK? The, the Motorsport Magazine guys did a fantastic chat with you, which people can find. And I think you talked to them about perhaps being on top of maybe a coffee cart or something or other. And were you watching the British Grand Prix or something? And it was it was almost a transformative moment. You were there, you know, with, with David, I think, pursuing Formula Ford stuff and so on. But that was like, this is me. I, I am meant to be here, more or less, aren't you? You've got a very good memory. Um, we arrived in the UK July 72, David and I. We, we went over early to prepare for the World Cup in October at Brands, mm. and we stayed in a tiny little masonette in Egham, and the guys who was there was Jim Murdoch okay. and another English guy, Howard Moore. So we bunked up in there. Then our David's other friend, John Farnsworth, arrived so a little team of Kiwis, but we said to um, Jim, we're going to go to the Grand Prix the following weekend. We've only been in the country a week, British Grand Prix at Brands. They said, oh, you'll never get in, you'll never get there, the traffic. We'd bought an old uh, Hillman Minx, ex-Scotland Yard. <laughs> so off we set on Saturday morning, or Sunday morning it was, 
all the back roads down to Brands Hatch and we got there, got into there and we finished up on top of a little, um, not a pie cart, but a little shop selling souvenirs and ice creams and all that sort of stuff. So we sat up there and watched the, my first ever Grand Prix live. Amazing. Can you remember some of the people that day and who won and so on? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> who, I mean, we're talking, what are we talking, 72 there, so... Um, some of the drivers of the era. Oh, it's just the cars then, you know, and the driving, the sound of the cars, um, different to the modern day world now. So, no, that was, you know, that sort of got me hooked. But I, one of the other reasons I went there was when I was at school, uh, we had French lessons, and I. What do you, you, you weren't much chop at this, were you? <laughs> what do you want to learn French for? We live in New Zealand, 12,000 miles away. But I'd read about people like Cosworth, people like Alan Mann racing. And then to be in England and suddenly like you're there where all this happens, you know, motorsport of the world. Yeah, amazing. So this is early days, probably doing it tough financially and so on. Stitch it together for me. How do you, I mean, you've stayed there as you've just talked about for 50-odd for years. What was the hard graft like early on and could, did you meet good people that helped open some doors? What transpired from there? It's, um, yeah, I mean, uh, my first job I got was uh, building race engines. We, David and I were there for six months, then David come back to run the, his father's business, Oxton Motors. Um, I stayed on, uh, took me four or five months to find a job that I wanted to do. And it was only, uh, I lived in Windsor then, and it was down in Twickenham, uh, racing services engines, and Ken Britton uh, and Spike Winter. And I loved it, small little race engine shop, but they were building... Formula 2 engines or rebuilding Cosworth engines. We were doing Formula Atlantic engines when it was Atlantic in the UK. Um, we actually built a, a is it 2.8 litre Cosworth V6 engine. Um, so a little engine shop dyno, John Miles used to run the dyno. He taught me how to use a dyno. So I really enjoyed it. But after two years, I wanted to move more to chassis work. So a mate of mine got me a job at Works March F2 team. Um, so I was in the deep end, but started to enjoy it. And that's what kicked me off. Then Fred Opert approached me. Then I moved to March. Works team was great, but too much um, top heavy on management, not enough hard workers on the team. So I I sat with Robin Hurd and um, said to him one Saturday, I said, I'm, I'm enjoying it, but I'm not enjoying it. And I said, you know, I told him straight, you're a bit top heavy on middle management people instead of people being good engineers or mechanics. And of course, Max Mosey was the other director then. And I, had, I got on great with them. So I said, you know, I'd like to stay, but I'm not. So um, Fred Opert had chased me, had met me at an F2 race. and. So I jumped ship and went to Fred, and then after two and a half, three years with Fred, we brought Brian Redman out here, the first trip home, my, my way to get home for a holiday. <laughs> you know, is it Chevron B29, BMW power? Yep. Um, then we switched to the Formula Atlantic cars with Rosberg and Kozarovitsky. Yep. Then the following year, um, Kick A and Bobby Rahal. So that was my trip home, five weeks hard graft. Um, and then I switched then to Ron Dennis, Project 4. You are rattling. I knew this conversation was going to go this way with you because there are some amazing names that you have uh, interconnected with, worked closely with, helped shape along the way. Can we, can we just rewind just fractionally there? Firstly, Max Mosley. I mean, he would go on to hold a very significant position in, in world motorsport and so on. Uh, what was he like back then? I mean, he, he actually has, um, in his, uh, he's gone now, but in his history, he had a, a period as a driver as well, didn't he? Yes, yeah. I got on great with both Robin and Max, um, being a Kiwi, like spades a spade, mm -hmm. and um, just told him as I felt things were from yeah. my perspective. Um, but I met up with him years and years later. He was on the FIA then, and he came down to, uh, we were doing world touring cars at Brands, and he came along to our garage and walked in, and he remembered my name. Hello, Dick. Good to see you again. And all my other teammates are there. We go, how do you know him? Yeah, how do you know? <laughs> That's Max Mosley. I said, yes, I know it's Max. <laughs> so, um, yeah, unfortunately, he's passed on now. But, yeah, no, he was very, both him and Robin, very sharp businessmen. Yeah. And... Um, 
I'm more of a passion for motorsport than the businessman side, but, you know, still going strong and looking to retire one of these days. Not yet at the moment by the sounds of things. I know how busy you are. Um, you have you have touched on something there that I think is uh, very a common theme sometimes for both Aussies and Kiwis, and that is the, I mean, particularly Kiwis, I find you, you have this... Um, you love that hands-on approach. You, you, the um, the want to find a solution in things. I'm not surprised that that March scenario perhaps didn't necessarily suit your way of thinking or or working. Yeah, I'm, uh, you have to be versatile. But you know, okay, I learned a lot working Fred Opet days because I when Fred learned I could build engines, he sent me to America to rebuild all his Formula Atlantic engines. And then Fred learned I could do this, Dick could you do that? And then I was doing the finances, looking after, because in those days, going around F2 in Europe, you have French francs, you know, <laughs> German marks, Italian lira, everything, pounds, sterling. And you know, I used to keep all the cash and look after all that, pay this. Fred, oh, gee, Dick, you're doing a great job. I said, Fred, yeah, but I'm engineer in a car, mechanic in a car, drive the transporter, do Accountant. the finance, <laughs> and I build engines. So... <laughs> So Fred was a great guy, um, but it's back to, you know, it's the versatility and it's harder to find that these days, mm. but it's probably more the passion you wanted to do it. Mm. Um, we used to work stupid hours, you know, sometimes, you know, if you have to work all night, you had to do it. Yeah. You just shrug your shoulders and get on with it. You mentioned Ron Dennis. What was he like to, to work with? I actually met up with Ron last November at the McLaren 60th do and probably had five to ten minutes talking to him. Okay. He's, he's knighted now too, I think, isn't he? Yes, so, yeah. yeah. No, uh, I never had a problem with Ron. I got on good with him to the points. The guys in the room, oh, you're his mate. I said, I'm not his mate, but don't stand in the workshop complaining about him because he's busy mm. negotiating to buy McLarens. Mm. So he's a busy man. So I said, if there's a problem, and... They always said, Dick, you go and talk to him about it. So I used to go and knock on his door, give me five minutes. He's like, right, we need this, we need that. And just, you know, straight to the point, get on with it. He'd yep. come down, yep, do that. Yep, I agree. Away you oh. go again. So, no, he was, um, it was great. Uh, first year was Formula 2, um, March, BMW engines, uh, Eddie Cheever, Ingo Hoffman. Then Ron, unbeknown to us, he had done a deal with BMW to assemble all the BMW M1 Pro cars. Mm -hmm. So we assembled 24 of those, um, absolutely knackered because we're working 16-hour days because Ron must have this finished, must have that one done, must get that one painted, must get that one out to that customer. Um, and then Ron said, right, one more. I said, oh, no, we've had enough. <laughs> and there's two Kiwi mates working. There was four of us doing it. Um, one English guy. Um, so Kev Weston was, Kev and I got on great. So we finished up building this last car and we didn't want to do it, but Ron said it's top line driving. When we eventually got to Silverstone, um, helicopter comes in and our hops Nicky Lauda. So oh. Ron said, this is why we've got the extra car. We're running it ourselves. Oh, okay then. <laughs> so we went on to win the championship. You say that with with ease. Oh, now I want to ask about Nicky. Now I want to ask about Bobby Rahal. Now I want to ask about Keke Rosberg. The, that was seventy nine, and then we started eighty again with the Pro Car BMW series, and we had Hans Stuck. But it only lasted, I think, from memory, three or four meetings, and then I don't know what happened. The money ran out, or whatever. So, um, but having worked with Nicky and Hans. We won the Monaco Grand Prix support race both years, but chalk and cheese drivers. In what way? Nicky was very precise, very. Hans was so laid back and having a laugh, and but you know, but when he got in the race car, he was very quick. Yeah. And I got on great with Hans. Nicky was harder to get through to, um, but he was, you know, Nicky louder. So. But Stucky was a great laugh. But you know, I'll never forget winning those races each year with chalk and cheese driving styles and feedback. Um, but that didn't last for, for some reason. So then we switched to 
uh, Ron asked me to help upstairs because John Barnard was doing the first ever carbon F1 tub. So I worked upstairs with them, helping them for about two or three months, but wasn't really enjoying it. Mm -hmm. So then Ron said, right, I want you to take over the F3 team. I said, I've never done F3. He said, well, you've done F2, you've done Formula Atlantic, you know what you're doing. So then we took over the F3 team and we struggled for a while because they had a march, um, 793. They had won it, sorry, yeah, they'd won it in 79 with Chico Serra. I think, yeah. So the 80 car had a problem. So I said to Ron, this Ralt car with this Kiwi guy, um, Rob Wilson, doesn't do bad. Looks like they've got no money, but on occasions that car flies. So we, we jumped in Ron's Porsche, went down to the Ralt factory. The two Rons sat together in a porter cabin office that Ron Taranek had. I'm in the workshop watching this car being assembled and like it was bracket on bracket on bracket. So we nicknamed it Bracketry in Motion. Um, you cut your fingers all the time because everything was just, Ron would, cheap, fantastic car, yeah. but the way he built it, um, cast aluminium angular 90 degrees, you, and he just used it through a bandsaw, so you had very sharp, sharp corners. Yeah. So. But we, after we learnt how it worked and we suddenly dominated, we went on to win the last four races and won the championship. We came from third to first and it was sad in some ways um, because Murray Taylor mm. had been leading the championship with Kenny Aitchison and we came from third to win it and MT wouldn't talk to me for about six months. So <laughs> <laughs> we're good friends now. Yeah. yeah. yeah so Okay, before, before we get to your own amazing um, chapter and, and business, so to speak. Can we tick a couple of boxes here? Ron Turanak. So he too, like Sir Jack Brabham, has very sadly um, left us now. But on the other side of the ditch from where we're recording this, held in very, very high regard for what he did in in relation to the build of race cars through that period, particularly 60s and, and 70s. Yeah. No, Ron and I got on great. We had our ups and downs, Kiwi versus Aussies. Um, but you know, he knew I, if I complained about something, it was serious. Yeah. And um, we, a lot of other F3 teams thought we were works F3 team, but trust me, we were not. Um, if we had a problem, I'd go and talk to Ron about it. And sometimes he'd agree, sometimes he wouldn't. So on a couple of occasions, we found some built-in design problems, um, especially the uh, 85 car when they went flat bottom rules uh, Ron had gone from a rocker car when we ran the centre F3 car it had a front rocker Ron then went to a push rod with a small rocker and somewhere down the line the geometry wasn't right and it was frustrating as we had Ayrton's mate um, Mauricio Guzelman and Mauricio was a Ford 2000 champion so a good little peddler and he kept saying the car has something wrong with it and uh, we couldn't find it, couldn't find it for about three race meetings and I was getting frustrated. So we went back to the workshop one night after a race, I think at Silverstone, and we worked on the car, pulled it apart the front end. We About 1.30 a.m. we found the problem by reverse engineering. So Monday morning, went down to the rail factory, only 15 minutes from us, and um, I went to the storm and I knew quite well. I said, can I have a pair of rockers? preferably not machined on the outer end. What do you want those for? I said, just <laughs> just want to have a little play. So we went away. James is his name. Come back, he said, there, is that what you want? I said, perfect. So we went back, we plotted out, and we West Surrey Engineering was a big machine shop. Went and the, one of the machinist guys milled through, put two holes in. We went out testing, found the problem. So, oh, what do we do now? Of course, the phone goes, the next race meeting, Ron Taranak, another team into sport, Glenn Waters, they had spotted different front rockers because they just they just stuck out from the bodywork. You yeah. could see it. And Ron said, what have you done? I said, we're just, you know, having a play, Ron. So Ron said, well, why have you done? I said, and he, he got in his car and drove over to us instead of me having to drive to him. <laughs> what have you done that for? I said, just because we think it's better, Ron. So we went back to his office. He rang me again and he said, the, he didn't blame himself. He called one of his draftsmen, draftsmen, not a designer, a draftsman. He said, he's put the decimal place in the wrong place and you've all got the wrong. I said, oh, I thought so, Ron. <laughs> <laughs> 
I love it. So we had sussed it. I said, right, Ron, as we've found it, I want a five-race meeting exclusive. No, 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 you can't have that, he said, <laughs> um, because he said the Reynard's getting quicker. We need to beat it. I said, okay, Ron, but let's be fair mm. that we've found this issue. We've fixed it. And because um, the hole we plotted was within about a mil of what he had, mm. I think his draftman had put the decimal place in the wrong place. So the rocker ratio is miles out. Mm. And the, the thing would go stagnant, the rocker wouldn't work. Um, so we finished up, I think from memory, a two race exclusive that no other route team could have the rocker till we. Mm. Of course, we went on to win the championship. We must thank Tony Quinn for allowing us to rent his race track for this special recording. Thanks, TQ. How much does Rusty owe you? Speaking of, you can catch TQ and his business insights in the garage library. They are as good as it gets. And I didn't want to go to the Gold Coast because it's the Gold Coast, you know. You go there for holiday, not for business. But anyway, it was the best thing that she ever said to me. It was the best ultimatum that she ever gave me. And the story of VIP is well documented. And, uh, you know, basically we started with nothing. 21 years later, sold it for 410 million. How many staff did you have at the end? Uh, 850 or 950. But that was across the chocolate thing as well, the Darley thing as well. But just on the pet food, it had five factories going 24 hours a day, five days a week. My dad used to say that everything you touch turns to gold. You've got the Midas touch. And, you know, not that I want to... I'm, I'm humbled by that, and I don't think that's really accurate because there has been a couple of failures. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's no doubt that the old saying, the harder you work, the more successful you become, has some merit and should be given some thought. Hear the tales of Tony in the garage library. All right, back to Dickie. Kiki Rosberg. Uh, he seems like, you know, younger fans that are listening to this chat and have perhaps been part of the drive to survive generation or whatever will know Nico Rosberg. His dad seems like the antithesis of him in, in some respects. What was what was he like back then when you got the chance to, to work with him? Great guy, hard on a car. <laughs> no nonsense, just got in and ragged oh, it basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, if Keke could find a curb, he would use it, <laughs> especially around Poe. Okay. And the curbs, you know, being a street circuit, and I had to say, Keke, keep off the bloody curbs because they were so steep. And the Chevron um, aluminium chassis was quite weak where the front suspension mounted. Mm-hmm. And he kept on. We had to keep repairing the chassis. He said, well, make it stronger. I said, well, we'll make it stronger. We'll put a plate in, stiffen up. But I said, that problem will move further down the line. Mm-hmm. And, and we went through, I think from memory, about 12 rooms that weekend because he kept on hitting the curb so hard it would damage the rim. But no doubt the raw speed of that guy and um, and the racing back out here, you know, the two years we won the championship, um, it was hard work because repairing the car, um, one little accident somewhere, we blew an engine. Fred sent out some engines from the States which weren't quite in the state he said they were, so I had to build an engine between the penultimate round and the final round. I had to I had to piece two old Atlantic engines together to make one. I did that at my brother worked for Toyota Dunedin, so we spent four or five days in there. Um, rebuilt an engine, rebuilt the cars before heading off to Wigram. So I think you and I have done an interview. I don't know if I have the chassis right here, but I'm sure we've used that car in the backdrop. It still exists here. It's it's, it's blue for memory, isn't it? Um, the yes, the January '77 was the blue B34s, mm-hmm. and '78 was the red B39s. I think, yeah. Your memory is sharp. You're raising your eyebrows there, but you've got to give yourself <laughs> yeah. you've got to give yourself more credit. Bobby Rahal, you mentioned him very briefly before. I mean, legendary in the United States and so on. What was he like? Yeah, Bobby, uh, he was a great guy. I'd I've met him through in Formula Two in Europe. Um, really nice guy, and an interesting little story away from Formula Atlantic. 
when he was in charge of Jaguar F1, uh, F1 teams then were having a junior team F3, and Bobby was in dialogue with me to run the Jaguar junior F3 team. And we were close on signing the deal. I thought this is a good opening for us to be linked into an F1 team. Yeah. Uh, I trusted Bobby, Bobby trusted me, but then it all fell over mm. just before we signed on the dotted line. Mm. We'll get to some more drivers here. West Surrey Racing, your own, like you've worked with different people that you've identified there, different teams and so on. When did did your own sort of push your own venture um become an idea for you and when did you hit hit the the go button on it? I was probably very fortunate, lucky, fortunate, timing, whatever. But um, when Ron was moving to F1, uh, end of 80 for 81, because we'd won the championship with Stefan with the F3 car, the Ralt, Ron said to me, sell the car, get rid of it, you know, and then, you know, will go from there so we had this um, request from this young trainee Dr Jonathan Palmer and we went down to Goodwood and did a test with him and the man who owned West Surrey Engineering Mike Cox he came down and Jonathan was pretty impressive now here he was a trainee doctor whatever 19 years 20 years old and um, he put in a pretty impressive lap time so um, they bought the car then JP rang me a couple of days, oh, we've lost half, three quarters of a second a lap round Goodwood. Can you help us? I said, right, bring the car back. And they'd soften the car off to make it easier to drive. And I'd said to them, it's a ground effect car. You must keep it firm to stop it rolling. So I reset it up and they asked me to go back for another test. So I went down there because, you know, we'd finished F3 with Project 4. Mm-hmm. And Jonathan went quicker than Stefan had ever gone and quicker than the previous test. When you say Stefan, you mean Stefan Johansson, Stephen yeah? Stefan Johansson, sorry, yeah, yeah. He was the 1980 champion. Um, and I then took Mike Cox to one side. I said, listen, you've wasted your money buying this car and this, you understand, get an engineer. Mm-hmm. And he turned and said, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm actually leaving Project 4. I'm not going to McLaren's F1. I've been offered a job from Ron. So I said, I've actually got no job at the moment. But I am going home to help Dave Oxen because I told Ron, um, David I wouldn't help him if he kept his old Chevron. I said, I'll only help you if you buy the big brother of the RT3, the Relt RT4. Thinking David wouldn't do it, I get a phone call from David. I've got one. <laughs> I'm in Canada. I bought a four-race old RT4 just like you told me to. You've got to come and help me. I said, oh, okay. So there's my holiday home. Five weekends like it is now. Yeah flat out, rebuilt the car, rebuilt a new engine for him, and we won the series. So um, it was that then um, I'd said to this guy, Mike Cox, that I can look at it, but I am not going to let my mate David down. So we actually, that was the opportunity I got to set up. So year one, 81, we went on to win the championship with Jonathan. First year in with our own team, but we entered it under West Surrey Engineering year one because Mike Cox was paying most of the bills. Um, he didn't quite understand we wanted to spend so much money. We were doing it on a shoestring. One of my mates from Formula One, Harvey Spencer, we lived together in Shepparton. He came along to Mechanicon and we worked great together and we won the championship and we did some pretty basic repair jobs on the car. Um, we used to have cracked discs and we'd drill holes in the end of the cracks to make them last. <laughs> Don't tell JP, it'll do another race. So, you know, Harvey and I worked great there. Um, then um, what happened? It was then at the end of 81, um, Mike said, I can't put more money. And I said, well, the phone started ringing then because first year in winning the championship, we had a lot of people ringing us to do F3. So we then changed the name to WSR and set it up commercially to run as a business. So year two with Kiki Mansilla, um, and he had jumped the ladder run rung. He went Formula Ford 1600 F3, 
whereas Ayrton Senna went Formula Ford 600, Formula Ford 2000, Formula 3 with us. So the end of 82, we finished up runner-up in the championship with a guy who had never done any slicks and wings. So we then got a message, um, Ayrton Senna would like to, Ayrton Senna de Silva would like to speak to us. So we met up, did a half-day test, did a race at the end of 82, and he blitzed everyone. He said, your car's fantastic. I want to race for you 83. So we shook hands. He took off to Brazil. So suddenly, you know, we, we had a top-line driver for, we'd finished second, first in 81, second in 82, one in 83, um, and this was the beginning of WSR. Um, so it's just got bigger and, but now the, the one of the big things now is the the crew, the people who work on the team. You, you have to have a good bunch of guys and girls to progress now because as the team gets bigger, you know, we now have only 12, 13 full time, but at a race meeting, we have 30 mm. to run four touring cars. Is there a little story in, you know, because this is the formative years and I I guess that there's probably juggles for you financially around certain things. You might have to sell a car to get the next one in and, and so on. And was there some sort of story somewhere here, I don't know if I've got the dates right, around a car that you perhaps sold to Dr. Helmut Marco? Is there something there? Yeah, yeah. That was, um, <clears throat> that was the end of 82, the Mansilla car. Because Ayrton raced that for one race, pole position, first fastest lap, and he won the race by 12, 14 seconds. He was a bit gutted that you sold it, is that yeah, right? <laughs> he, he loved the car. So when he arrived back in 83, here's a brand new white route sitting there. He said, where's the blue one? I said, we've sold it. But I like that car. It was good. <laughs> I said, yeah, but this will be good as well. It's just an evolution of last year's car. Oh, but I really like that blue one. I said, <laughs> I said, we have to live through the winter, so we've sold it. Who did you sell it to? I said, we sold it to... Helmut Marco. Oh. I said Gerhard Burgers, the driver. Oh, oh. So no, we in those days we had to sell a car, um, only running a one car team, you sell it to live through the winter till you get your next year's budget. So yeah, no, it was a laugh because when Gerhard come to pick it up, um middle of February, I think it was from He wanted to tow it back or something. Yeah, he <laughs> op- he had a van with an open deck trailer to put the car and I said Wherever we built this car looking like new, you're not taking it back to Switzerland, Austria, um, with an open, you know, so he had to say an extra day, we bought tarpaulins, car covers, bungee cords to tie around the car before we loaded it up on the trailer. Amazing. Can we talk Ayrton? I mean, for most people listening, a, a hero, as you and I sit here, has been gone, what are we talking, 30 years now, since 1994, 94. we're in 2024. Um, at that stage, you're working with someone on a on a meteoric rise, but with clearly an abundance of very special talent. What was he like as a human being, and what was he like as a racing driver? Um, he was he was a nice guy. A lot of people thought he was quite cold, and he could be at a race meeting. Um, we had a couple of frosty moments because he sometimes crashed when he didn't have to. He wasn't prepared at times to finish second to Martin Brundle. Um, and I just said to him, you're chucking away points. Um, and, you know, but away from the racetrack, um, he was a fun guy. We used to um, go out to a um, Chinese restaurant and shepherd him and even continued to do that a couple of years after he left us and went F1. He'd ring up and say, and I finished up helping him to buy a house in 85. Um, but we went to a couple of barbecues at a friend's house and he taught us how to make caipirimas, the Brazilian drink, yep. um, him and Mauricio Guzman, and we'd have some good laughs together. But way at a race meeting, he, he always appeared to be cold. He was very focused on what he was doing. Um, sometimes I thought a little bit too much, you know, um, you're supposed to enjoy what you're doing and okay yes you're professional for that age he was very professional um commercially he knew what he was doing he had good advice from a, another brazilian uh, friend of his father's who would uh, amando um and yeah they were they were very sharp commercially um but yeah he's his raw talent was there and 
he was an all-rounder to me because he could give you feedback on an engine, how it worked, response, the chassis, everything. He was so precise. Um, whereas I often say, uh, in chatting to people, um, who is the best, Senna or Hakkinen? Hakkinen's raw talent was unbelievable, mm. but Mika couldn't give you the feedback Ayrton could. Mm. So you had to do a little bit of guesswork with Mika, but his pure talent would be every bit as good, if not better, than Ayrton. Mm. We'll, come, we'll come to him in a second. Just a to, to, couple of points to continue here on Ayrton, if we can. Firstly, um, it wasn't uncommon for him to ring you days later after a test or a race. He'd remember something about car behaviour or car performance. I mean, the, the level of depth, um, his memory must have been exceptional, was it, of the detail he could he could recall? Unbelievable. Um, a lot of drivers, when they're driving, they're focusing and concentrating so hard driving, they can't give much feedback. He could get out the car and, as you said, sometimes he'd ring me two or three days, oh, Dickie, I've thought about this and that and that. Um, that was doing this here and that was doing that there. Of course, in those days, there was no laptop computers. There was nothing. You had to make notes of it all. He was the data guy, wasn't was the, 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 yeah, 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 yeah. Not only a driver, he was a data engineer. <laughs> so I said, hang on, Harry, I'll go and get a notepaper and make that. He's telling me. Um, whereas these days now, you can't. we can't even run an engine now without plugging a laptop in. Yeah. everything's electronic and now with the current touring cars guys I still try and push them to give feedback but they want to see the data first mm. and compared to their teammates especially if the teammates quicker they want to see where they're slower mm. but to me they should still learn to give feedback because it's their feel yes. what a car's doing mm. how the engine reacts you know what we do um so those days it was um, seat of the pants engineering. You'd have to listen to what the driver's saying and work it out. And, and a classic example was 82 Mansilla, not only ever having raced a Formula Ford 1600, he had no experience with aero slicks and wings. And the first three or four races in 82, we really struggled because he kept telling me the car was oversteering, oversteering, oversteering. So, of course, we were changing it to cure the oversteer. I got so annoyed one day, I went and watched him out on track at Alton Park, and he had bad understeer. He had so much understeer, he'd pull the lock on till the front gripped, and then it would oversteer. So, there's no radio those mm -hmm. days. Put the pit board out, in. <laughs> Bring him in. Right, hop out the car, Kiki. Why? Why? I said, I said because we're, we're going down the wrong road. Mm -hmm. Hop out the car, change the springs, change the wings, change the campus. <laughs> Spent an hour changing the car. Right, away you go again. And he come back. I knew already by the old handheld stopwatch we were much quicker. Mm. Car's fantastic, Dickie, he said. <laughs> I said, yeah, because you had bloody understeer, not oversteer. Mm. So, but now you can see it all on the laptop. You can see the understeer going into a corner. You can see if they lock up a brake. You can see where the brake ratio is. You know, You can see how much damper movement there is on the front left or that. I love, though, that there is still in your mind a, a level of importance placed on the driver and their, their response, their reaction, in conjunction, obviously, with that data. Yes, yeah, I think it's very important for a driver to learn how a car works, but not just get out the car and leave it to the engineer to look at the data. Mm. Sometimes computers have failures and that, but generally, you know, um, I sit in the debriefs last year with we geared up from three to four BMWs and it's interesting the, listening to the four drivers well what does the data show no you tell us what you feel the biggest problem is and that was always my belief what's the biggest problem high speed low speed is it into the corner mid corner or exit go back to basics and I've still kept the books from 1981 Palmer 82 Mansilla 83 Senna wow with circuit maps handwritten and the guys T-I-M-C-E-X turn in mid-corner exit that's what the first thing what a car does when you turn in that tells you what the problem is mm. exit it. we can sort it but what's it going into the corner right. the exit can be fundamental on your entry and understeer oversteer mm. and to me that's still key how a race car works whether it's a single seater mm. Aero, non-aero, touring car. Mm. Yeah, it's... 
I think um, Martin Brundle has has talked to my buddy Tom Clarkson about this for the official F1 podcast. That that rivalry between the pair of them, and when it when it ultimately boiled over in in F3, I mean that was a huge thing, really. I mean we still talk about it all these years later, don't we? It boiled over more than once. <laughs> Kettle ran dry, I think. <laughs> Um, yeah, he's as I said earlier, Ayrton didn't like finishing second, and we fell out a little bit over it because you know I said you know you get in those days it was nine points for a win, six points for second, and he would chuck away a finish whereas he could have had six points, and we had such a points lead. I think we had thirty-seven point lead after race nine, race meeting nine. So you could afford to finish second and still win the championship. No, I want to win. So the determination on But then whether it was partially my fault, Eddie Jordan still disagrees, still doesn't believe it. Um, but we had heard that Martin got a, a fresh engine. We both had Nova Motor Toyotas mm-hmm. built at Pedrozani in Italy. Ours, I did a deal with John Nicholson. Nicholson McLaren's built ours in England keep the business within Kiwis, mm-hmm. keep the money in the UK. Um, but we then were told Ed, um, Martin had a, a fresh engine in the second half of the year and that's where he got that little edge on us because I was starting to run less rear wing to keep up with Martin down the straights. Wow. And it wasn't till then I thought, right, we'll go. So I sent Ayrton out to Nova Motor um, after the penultimate round mm rebuilt they rebuilt the engine and came back and like different engine and we went for a half day test at snet no a day test at snedded and pre the final championship round and of course we had lost number one i had to buy number two and put on the car which was you know 10p each whatever they were <laughs> um because we started with number 11 being confident mm-hmm. and after race one to win it you just pulled off one so we're number one because in those days you changed the number based on your championship position yeah, yeah. So this fresh engine, straight away after his first run, it and of course those days we were um, EJ and Martin in garage one, we were at garage thirty, timing each other all morning, <laughs> <laughs> and straight away Ayrton was crazy. This engine's fantastic. I wish we'd had it earlier. I said, well, we didn't. We've got what we got, mm. um, and it was sharp. You could hear it, mm. very sharp. So then to help or make it worse for Martin, um, Ralts had two upgrades for 84. Ron Taranak, 15 minutes from us, um, Ron said, Dick, you've got side pods or some steering geometry. I said, mm, we've played with steering geometry over the years, this caster, and, um, you know, cambers. And um, so I said, uh, I'll take the side pods, Ron. So we liveried them up the same as the race ones put them on just before lunch on this test day and I had the old stopwatch going, no quicker. So Ayrton comes in, hops out the car, we went for lunch over the cafe. He said, we're going to be quick this afternoon. So <laughs> I said, why is that? He said, those side pods are great. I said, we didn't go any quicker. He said, I'm not trying yet. Okay. He said, I'm not trying. So we had lunch, went out, old tyres still, and he went quicker straight away. He said, that engine and these side pods, mega. So we went to the final round. Of course, paranoid re- reliability, the championship relies on one race now, so Thruxton. So Thruxton being a fast track, one of the problems with the Toyota was it took a long time for the oil temperature to get up. So we tested it SNET, and it didn't have an oil cooler. It had a slot in the side pod, an air about an inch wide, 25, 30 mil wide by about a foot deep and used to tape that up to control the oil tank because the oil tank was just behind it mm-hmm. in the side pod. So we tested and we taped it up. Yes, the oil temperature comes up. Obviously no air going to it. This is a mega for Thruxton. Lap one or lap two of the race will be there. We have to take the tape off. So we tested it snet and it worked. Got to Thruxton, we put it on, um, and then we, I kick myself now for even being so silly to do it. But it worked. He made a storming start, cleared off in the lead, but trying to get the tape off around Thruxton on such a high-speed track, <laughs> the I put a little tag on the the white tape so he could help pull it off. But it was back against the side pod, and he had to loosen the seat belts, 
to, to reach out to pull this tape off. And he almost lost control going through the chicane. And we laughed about it afterwards because he managed to get it off on about lap three. So the oil temp was creeping up oh, very high. Wow. Could have blown the engine. And we really laughed about it. We went out for a party that Sunday night. <laughs> but I thought, you know, the, the effort to find that little bit edge for the lap one or two of the race, mm -hmm. but it could have cost us the championship. Amazing. In, in wrapping up this little um, conversation, thank you for the depth there. People will really enjoy that. A, a word on Martin. Ayrton would go on to do some very special things and still be remembered as such. In that period where those two were going head to head, from what you observed of him and, and, and so on, did he have that, you know, that special thing too? What was he like at that stage? He was, um, EJ was very good. EJ was very good at winding people up. And he, you know, I, you know, EJ's a great guy. We used to go and do Macau together, Marlborough yeah. Theodore. So we have great laughs, great fun. Um, but EJ was a good manipulator too. He had all, and with me being a Kiwi, Ayrton being Brazilian against, you know, okay, EJ's Irish, yes. but uh, Martin being Britain, he got all the Brits behind Martin. You know, Dickie, we're going to beat you. He'd really push it. I said, oh, no, no problem, EJ, don't worry about it. But Martin lifted his game big time. And he said, through us running Ayrton, lifted his game that he could do a route. He had a route Toyota, we had a route Toyota. So if Ayrton could go that quick, he could go that quick. Mm -hmm. So it, it, you know. They, it, they pushed each other then in that sense, didn't they? Yes, yeah. yep, yeah. yep. And we still have that these days now with the touring cars. We've got Jake Hill on board and Colin Turkington. Mm -hmm. And Jake has turned out to be very quick. So, Colin, you have to lift your game, mate, because your teammate, yes. and they can see each other's data. Mm -hmm. Whereas in those days, we only ran one car for Ayrton. Mm -hmm. So we had no data. There's no data anyway, but we couldn't even talk to another driver about how good his car was on that mm -hmm. corner or that corner. Mm -hmm. So, um, but no, Martin, I'll never forget it, um, the Autosport Awards a couple of years ago, Martin was up doing the comparing on stage and he mentioned me and he said, that bloke there, Dick Bennis, destroyed my career, he said. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, in front of about a thousand people, so it was only light-hearted. Yeah, of course, yeah. of course. So, no, I, yeah, we see Martin now and um, BRDC members and have a good laugh about the, the past. It was a flashpoint moment in the careers of two very talented young racers on the path to F1. How good are his recollections from his point of view there? That's the end of part one of my podcast with West Surrey Racing's Dick Bennett's. We are just getting warmed up. There is another helping for you to enjoy when you're ready. Jump back to the library and power up part two whenever it suits. From the move to the British Touring Car Championship and the amazing two-litre super touring machines that were engineering masterpieces, to the modern era and the BMWs his team now campaigns, and memories, much more memories, of great names that he's worked with along the way.